What? He likes that word learn. Well, that's maybe, what we have to maybe, do. Maybe you'd like to try it. Huh? <laughs> you know, my prayer would be, dear God, please bless this blessing. <laughs> please what? Bless this lesson. Yes. Amen. I always pray before I come up here to, or just to have a, make it be about His glory and about the about our good at being edified, and that our hearts would be turned towards seeing Him. Every time I listen to a sermon on YouTube or something, sometimes I get caught up in just listening to the words or watching the man preach, and I try now making a point to say, I want to see You, Lord, in this. I want to looking for Him. And so when we read the scriptures, that's what we should be doing is looking for Him. Setting our hearts towards Him. That's the important thing. So yes, we are back in Luke. Chapter 3. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. We, we'll take a break probably once we get through Chapter 3. It's been a process. We, I was sitting here looking. We've been in Luke for a long time and we've barely scratched. And that's okay because there's been so much in early Luke that is very unique. Very unique to Luke. About John the Baptist, more detail there. And Mary, obviously, more detail there. And then we'll just get through. Once we get through chapter 3, which today we're going to be spending most of our time, I think, just on the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now, remember last week, we kind of broke off at a very odd point. Where we broke off with verse 18, and we, we talked about, and I'm not going to go back into how John the Baptist preached the gospel, but obviously he didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. Um, he was expecting, you know, I, they were definitely expecting a kingdom. They were all expecting a kingdom. And we've, we've read in early Acts where that's what they asked Jesus right before he ascended is that at this point you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So they're all expecting an earthly kingdom. And I think John the Baptist did too. So I don't, I'm not exactly sure the detail of the gospel that he proclaimed, but we ended up with that last week. Because in, in Luke, when, I think we, I'm not sure if we covered this or not, but this is future John the Baptist when he's locked up in jail, which is what we're going to talk about here in a minute. I guess we'll go ahead and read this first real quick, and then we'll deal with this. Uh, verse 19, this is Luke chapter 3, verse 19. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, by John the Baptist, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. And so this, this was... Later in Jesus' ministry, we know that, and this is the note down here, this event actually occurred much later during Jesus' ministry. But Luke organized his material on John the Baptist topically rather than chronologically. And so this happened much later. We know that from the other Gospels. Um, but what happened there is that Herod, the ruler in Israel at that time, he wanted Herodias, who was his brother's wife, and so the, he talked her into divorcing his brother, and then he took her to be his wife. Hey! So that's what happened. And so John the Baptist rebuked him for that, and then it says also more than that, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. And so Herod added more to his sin. He locked up John the Baptist in prison. And so... 
Anyway, so when we go, so and kind of tying this back to the kingdom, what we we're just talking about. So John the Baptist is in prison, and we see why there he got thrown in prison because he rebuked the king or the ruler in Israel. And he didn't want to hear that, so he had him locked up. And so in Luke chapter seven, which we'll get to someday, I think we read this, but I'll just read it real quick. Where John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus and asking him, "Are you the expected one?" Or do we look for someone else? So John the Baptist is questioning because he's in jail. He's asked, he's he's sending somebody to Jesus and saying, "Are you the Messiah?" And so this and you see the history we have here of all. I mean, he first off when he was in his womb he leaped for joy when Jesus walked when Jesus was in the womb of Mary in the same room, and then you see here you know he's he's preaching baptism of repentance and you know he's he's the he's the forerunner. We've been through all that, and yet he's expecting a kingdom. And he's in jail. And so he's wondering, okay, I thought I was the forerunner to the king, to the Messiah, and we and this is not going the way I had planned on it going. And so he sent people. So he he it seemed like a genuine question that John the Baptist, although, as Jesus said, the greatest of born of women, was he's a he was a frail, unredeemed, in unredeemed flesh. And he questioned whether he got to the point where his suffering caused him to question whether Jesus was the Messiah or not, because he was expecting a kingdom. And then, of course, we know, which we'll go to, we'll get a little more detail into this situation that John the Baptist had with Herod. You find that in Matthew chapter 14. Verses 1 through 5. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work within him. So, this kind of, he's talking after he has had John the Baptist beheaded, and this explains it. For when Herod had John arrested, what we're talking about here, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. What we just talked about. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Obviously, it wasn't. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So immediately, when John, when Herod had John the Baptist arrested, he he would just have preferred to put him to death. But he feared the crowd because many of the people revert, revered John the Baptist as a prophet, and so they always feared riots. A lot of times, this happened with Jesus, where they wanted to do something, but then they knew the crowds loved him so much because he was healing and doing those things that they, they they feared a riot from the crowds and so they would they would not do anything and that's what happened here but when Herod's birthday came okay so Herod's having a birthday party the daughter of Herodias the his the wife he stole from his brother danced before them and pleased Herod so no, much the daughter of Herodias wasn't it what wasn't it the daughter yeah of yeah but when Herod's birthday came the daughter of Herodias you're right. If I didn't read that, that's what I meant to read. It's verse 6. Matthew chapter 14, verse 6. Uh, daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath. So he promises in front of his guests and because of his dinner guest, so he didn't want to look like a fool. He'd already made this, he's probably half drunk. He and was sitting. a fool by saying what he said. Yeah, but he had to back it up now because everybody heard what he said. 
And so he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took it away, took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. So that's what happened. That's how John the Baptist was killed. He he was in prison and he got his he got his head cut off because the daughter of Herod's illegitimate wife pleased him pleased Herod so much by dancing. I'm sure seductively. And then they served her on a platter. <laughs> and so that that goes to show you that almost every single Christian prophet, or I'm sorry, prophet of the Old Testament, or 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 apostle that you, they know none of them died with dignity. They all died horribly. Peter was said to be crucified upside down. He didn't. They were going to crucify him normally, but he didn't want to be. He didn't want to die the same way. He didn't find himself worthy to be killed the same way as Jesus. So he he was crucified upside down. Many of them there were were burned, nailed to a stake. I mean, Christian martyrdom over the history of the world has been gruesome. And here's another example for the most preeminent prophet jesus says he's greater than a prophet ends up getting his head cut off because of a bet or because of an oath of, at a party and it just it, it, it should humble us to realize that and, and it was a, but it was still it brought glory to god in the way these people died even though that was a, you know obviously a gruesome way to go but that's just the reality of serving Christ is, and we, we say this all the time, that we live in a time and in a place that is unique and unusual. That proclaiming Christ and having genuine saving faith in, in Christ like we do doesn't put our lives at risk every day. It's unusual. And it, but it's only here. It's, it's here and now, really, yes. Yeah. Uh, I heard was it John or somebody said that there are more Christians. I think it was more deserved. Yeah, I heard that too. Christians are being killed this century or this decade or one of the two than ever before. Yeah. yeah, we don't see it. We don't. Now, again, you get Christian, the word there, broad blanket, yeah. you know, and you don't know how many are truly born again. But yeah, other places of the world, we know in China there's persecution going on now, legitimate born again people being jailed and, and people being killed over there. And obviously, in any Muslim Islamic nation, you're putting your life at risk, and so I was yeah. Shocked that. Yeah, I was too. I heard that. That must have been the sermon I heard right, the last one I heard. So that's the reality of it. That we sh- we should be we sh- we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should actually be surprised by the fact that we and be thankful. I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm not thankful for the fact that I don't have to worry about at least right now for the sticker on my truck or any any going to church that. It's not going to cost me my freedom or my life because I'm not saying I would want to be thrown in jail or or killed, but it would be an honor if you do it for Christ and your life would get better if you got killed and he'd still be in control of the people you left behind. That's usually the struggle I have is the people you leave behind, but guess what? God doesn't need you to rule over their lives and he will. And so... So that's how, but going back to the point where you see John the Baptist didn't see this coming. He didn't, he thought the kingdom was coming. The king was here. He was the forerunner. We're going to set up the kingdom. Obviously, the the kingdom will come 
and we're still waiting for the kingdom. The millennial kingdom is what we're talking about here. When he returns, he will set up an earthly kingdom. And at the end of the tribulation period, John, John the Baptist will be raised from the dead, and he will be in the millennial kingdom with us. So will Peter. Actually, Peter will probably be raptured because he... Yeah, it's tricky. I don't know. It's interesting to know that because the, usually what we view as the rapture of the church are people who got saved from Pentecost to the rapture. Remember, we talked about this that the church age began at Pentecost. Obviously, John the Baptist died before Pentecost. He, so he's an Old Testament believer in that sense, Abraham, all those. But Peter got saved before Pentecost, but he was there during Pentecost and, and ministered after Pentecost. So it'll be interesting to see whether the apostles who were saved before Pentecost but actually were there and were the ones who received the Spirit at Pentecost, whether they'll be raptured before the tribulation period or after. The Old Testament saints are raised after the tribulation period. Church-age people like us will be raptured before. Anyway, side note. I don't understand here in uh, verse 20, he was in prison. And then verse 21... All of a sudden, it's the people were being baptized. Yeah, that's why the note here, down here, it's confusing. Is and if you look at his or John MacArthur's note down here, is that it's this actually this event of verse twenty actually occurred much later in Jesus' ministry. But Luke organized his material on John the Baptist topically rather than chronologically. Mm. So yes, this happened later, and that's why in Matthew it's in chapter fourteen. So yes, this did not happen here because obviously, yeah, he's about to baptize Jesus Christ in the next verse. So he wasn't in prison when he did that. So yes, that's that's because he never got out of prison. No. So yeah, that event was there, but but <clears throat> Luke organized it in a different way, and and it was chronological for the most part. But obviously, we see here that is more topically. So he's dealing with John the Baptist here, and so he threw that in there. All right. But yes, you're right. That's because it's a good point. Because we are, we are going on to the. This is where we spend most of the time today, I believe. But also, one more thing on John the Baptist with Herod is that he was he was thrown in jail and ended up being killed because he was always calling for repentance, and he did it to even the ruler of Israel, who I'm sure he knew that if he did this, he was going to be in trouble, or he could be in trouble. And so. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that uh, rulers could do anything they want, including murder. Yeah. Some of them still do. Yeah, some of them still do. Some of them still do. Well, they all do it under the, under the authority of God. I don't and know about this Venezuelan guy, if he did it under, under God, but... Well, they all, they all... Okay, they all, um, I should clarify that. When, um, anything that happens... God allows to happen, so so he could, he. It's not that God wants this guy to be doing this, or that He wanted Herod to be doing this, or that He wanted Herod to kill John the Baptist, cutting his head off. But He chose to allow it, and He could have chosen not to allow it. And so, in that sense, He willed it to happen because He's got a good purpose for it. And Herod, if he assuming he died in his sins, and it sounds like he did, he was he paid for every single sin he ever did. Nobody gets off the hook. And it is Venezuelan guy or whoever, whatever leader you're talking about, if they act corruptly, they're just storing up more wrath for themselves. So they don't get nobody gets off the hook. Here and now, in the temporary, yes, God patiently waits 
but he's got a good purpose in it. All right, so now we'll deal with the baptism of Jesus, and we'll probably go three places for this because this is not the most detailed of the accounts. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So we're going to go more, we're going to, now I'm, we're actually turn to Matthew, we'll all turn I think if we can, because it's, we'll, we'll look at the baptism account in Matthew, because there's a little more detail there. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, which is page 1365 in your book. So yeah, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, we'll begin with. There's a little more detail, not overwhelming, and then one other place we'll go. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, the Baptist here. Yeah, I think we need to let him out. That's Get up here, now. No. <laughs> so he came to John to be baptized by him. I know, that's right. I need protection. Hey, hey. Be good. Behave. So, so Jesus is coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now remember what we did a couple lessons ago. This, this is a baptism of repentance. Repentance from sin. So what does John do? John tries, verse 14, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So he's saying, hey, he recognizes that Jesus is righteous and sinless, and he has no need to repent. No need to be baptized here because this is a baptism of repentance. He says, but I need to be baptized by you. So he's saying, I'm the one who needs to be repenting, not you. And Jesus, and it's correct. It's a correct answer. Yes, he doesn't have to go out. Okay, no problem. Um, and he was right. There's a clear point that Jesus did not need to be baptized for repentance. He didn't need to repent of any sins. So John the Baptist recognized his holiness and righteousness. But what what'll be well we'll get in this meant. But Jesus answered answering him, answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heavens, and this is kind of what we read in Luke. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so, when Jesus responds by saying, Permit it at this time, for it is in... It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's kind of tricky because like we talked about, Jesus did not need a baptism of repentance. But he obviously asked John to do it and demanded John to do it. 
for a reason. And so the best I know, I've kind of reviewed this a little bit, and it's kind of hard to know. It, it was a command to the sinners that Christ would be representing. So these people who came along in order, it was a, it was a command to people in Israel to say, they were commanded to repent and then be baptized with this baptism of repentance. And so it was a command for them to do that. And so in a sense, he was, he was obeying, he was obeying a command that was given to the people that he was going to redeem is the best I have. Why he needed to be baptized. Cause this is not Christian baptism. We, we went through this a couple weeks ago. Remember this is not, associating yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it hadn't happened yet. This is a baptism of repentance for Israel for their coming Messiah. And so, but it was a baptism of repentance. They were to hum, they were humbling themselves, realizing their sin, and expecting their, their Messiah was coming on the scene to save them. And so that's the best I have as to why Jesus saw it fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Is that he was he was fulfilling a command to the sinners he was going to redeem. It was a ceremonial command. Obviously, the 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 water baptism didn't do anything for anybody. Just like Christian baptism doesn't do anything for anybody now, but it represents and it represented those people. Most of them, I would say, who got baptized by John were genuinely heartfelt, repentant in their heart. But we talked about, remember, the others, the Pharisees that were coming to be baptized, it said, in Luke. But they obviously weren't humbled. They were coming out the challenge because John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. So these people were humble at heart, but, but the command was there in addition to the, to demonstrate externally your, your, broken, your, your repentant heart inwardly, these Jews were called to be baptized. And so Jesus saw it fitting to do it. But it's tough because, again, he, he, you see in the struggle with John the Baptist, he's saying, no, I'm not baptizing you because you are, you are sinless. But what's also interesting, is there any questions here while we're going through this? Not yet. Okay. Well, a note that's interesting is that you find that we find out in the Gospel of John that, G, that John the Baptist, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, like what the conversation we're having here, when in verse 14, John tried to prevent him, this is Matthew chapter 3, I have need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. He did not know he was the Messiah, which is interesting. You don't, you don't pick that up anywhere, and you think you just assume that he knew that Jesus was the, is the, king, you know, the Messiah to come, the anointed one, the Christ. He just evidently knew, though, he, he must have observed enough of Jesus' life to realize that he was righteous and did not need to have any repentance. And you say, where do we get that? And now we move to the third section here. We'll go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. And these are the three sections where you get the baptism. But in, actually here in John, we don't even get the baptism. We get John, we get John the Baptist speaking about the baptism after it had already happened. All right. The OAS, page 1542. 
All right, so verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is after his baptism when he says this. So it's the next day after the baptism he, he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is, this is he on behalf whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher ranked than I, for he existed before me. I did not re And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 31, chapter 1, John. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. He's the, this is Jewish messiahship here. It's always, I always point that out when I say he's manifested to who? The world? No, not first. At first, he's manifested to Israel. Always to Israel first. Offer of the kingdom to Israel. I came, but anyway, so that he may be, might be manifested to Israel. I, I came baptizing in water. Okay? John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Okay, so he's, he's recalling the baptism that we've been through in Luke and Matthew now. And he's saying, this is what happened. And then verse 33, I did not recognize him. He says it again. So he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know he was the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize in water, okay, which I don't know if you remember, in Luke chapter 3... You don't have to turn here. Luke chapter 3, verse 2, when we were there, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, here's how it happens. Um, and then it talks about now in the 50th year of you know the timeline here in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of, of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So this is when the word of God came to John. So this is what he's talking about here in verse 33 in, in, chapter, in John 1. He's saying that he who sent me to baptize, which was the Father, Okay, he called him in the wilderness and said, okay, word of God came to him. It's time to go. Time to go start doing this. And he, and he, and, but then also he received more instruction here is what we got, where we get more detail here. Uh, but he who sent me to baptize the Father in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And he says, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So you see here, it's interesting, the timeline here is that when, when, he, when he was, he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah until after he baptized him and he came out of the water and the Spirit came down. Which is just interesting because he, he recognized him as righteous, obviously, in Matthew 3, before he baptized him. He says, hey, I don't need to be being baptized by you, you need, uh, or I need to be baptized by you, not you to me, because it's either baptism or repentance. So I find that interesting. And then, of course, you see a little bit more detail in there in verse 32. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove, and he remained upon him. And the, the, so the Spirit, when he came down, now, we're, now we'll go back to Luke and we'll stay there. So you see a little more detail. You see a little more detail there of... The baptism, which I, I just found that interesting because I remember when I first read that, I'm oh, wait a minute, how did John the Baptist, he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until until he saw the Spirit come down, which was after he came out of the water. And that's just what it says. Well, it says in the notes down below, God had previously communicated to John that this sign was to indicate the promised Messiah. Yes. But you see, before he baptized him, he recognized him as righteous anyway. Because remember in Matthew 3, he says, when Jesus came to be baptized, this is before the Spirit came down on him, before he knew he was the Messiah, mm -hmm. 
he says, hey, I don't need to be baptizing you. This is a baptism of repentance. You need to be baptizing me. And so, but so he somehow, he still recognized his righteousness. And I think you can see that in, in one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say here real, real quick is that you see that the voice, now we're back in Luke now, which this is page 1485. So we're back in Luke where we began. So I'll just read the whole thing again and we'll deal with it again. So I, I, I thought, so you get more detail in Matthew and then you get kind of a, a, a rear view point of view from John the Baptist in John 1. And uh, so we'll just go back to Luke and do, deal with these three or these two verses. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so you have the scene here, which is an incredible scene. This is an incredible scene of you have all three persons of the Trinity involved here. Three distinct simultaneous persons in relationship with each other. I always say, you know, which we'll go into a little bit more here in a minute is that um, modalism is a heresy, okay? And what modalism is, is the teaching that God is one person, okay? We know that God is one being. There's only one God, right? One God. But within the one God, within the one being of God, there's three divine persons. Modalism teaches that there's, there's one God, one person, and then he just kind of switches modes from Father to the Son to the spirit but it's it's switching it's not simultaneous they're not three in relationship with each other which is heresy they're saying the father is the son he's the father sometimes then he turns then he becomes the son and then he's then he becomes the spirit and he comes you know back and forth but it's like switching hat kind of thing and uh, and but right here is you can take a nuclear bomb to modalism when you have right here in in the baptism of jesus you have jesus coming out of the water and you have the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. Now that's interesting. Um, when I first heard MacArthur talk about that, he said that it did that the Holy Spirit didn't come down actually shaped like a dove. That it came that he came that it's more saying that he landed like a dove, like a dove would land, you know how a dove would come down with a nice soft landing. And that that's what it was saying, that he land that the spirit came down landing like a dove. But if you read here, it says in bodily form, like a dove. So I'm thinking that he came down, sh the Spirit. Again, we know that the Holy Spirit is not material. He's a, sp he's a Spirit. And so he just, obviously at this particular point, made him manifest himself visibly in in the shape of a dove, I would th I think. It's either, I personally think he shaped himself like a dove. And landed like a dove as well, because it just says in bodily form, like a dove, and so that makes me think that he actually did shape himself like a dove, and then so so that John the Baptist and I don't know how many other people could visibly see him coming down and landing, not only landing on Jesus, not like you know, and, and that if he had he, he remained with him, this is this is when Jesus was anointed with power, okay. 
Okay, so the first point I want to make here is that we have all three persons of the Trinity involved here. And so you see they're, they're, all, they're all simultaneous. And then at the same time, the Father is speaking out of heaven. So the Father's in heaven, the Son's coming out of the water, and the Spirit's coming down. So there's the Trinity. You know, people say the word, the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and they're right. The word Trinity is not. But you can't, it might as well be in this two verses here. As you see, we have three divine persons in relationship with each other at the same time. All right. Questions on that? Yeah, we've been we did the lesson on the Trinity, and I'll I'll mention a little part of this when we're talking about the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. And again, we I'm always very clear. Here's my definition. Here's the best definition I've heard of the Trinity. It's one God. There's only one God. I always say that people accuse Trinitarians of you know you got more than one God. No, there's only one God. Bible is replete with scriptures teaching monotheism. There's only one true and living God. But, it, but one God fully shared by three distinct, co-eternal, co-equal, fully divine persons, namely Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have the one God fully shared by three persons. There's one what? Three who's within the one what. And they're distinct. There's the key. That's, the, that's what we're dealing with here in the baptism, that the, you see their personal distinction. There are distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. You can see that here. And the three persons have eternally been in relationship with each other. And that's important. They're simultaneous. In the beginning was the Word. This is John 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a distinction between the Word and God the Father, but you also have an equality of the Word being God. So the, each of these persons here, the Father in heaven speaking, the Son, the Spirit descending as a dove, and in the Son coming out of the water, who's already been incarnated, obviously for thirty years, they are all fully, they're all fully God. They're each God. Each person is fully God, and yet there's only one God, and so that's where you get the Trinity. You get the biblical teaching of monotheism and you get the biblical teaching that three persons are called God and so that's where you come up with the concept of God being triune and so that's what I've heard it said and it's well said that that if the you learn the Trinity by by believing the Bible and believing all of the Bible and so that so you say all right I believe every word of the Bible like you see one scripture over here, it says Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord. And then you see one over here, it says the Holy Spirit is God. And another over here, obviously many, that say God, the Father is God. So you have, you're like, okay. But the Bible also teaches there's only one God. And so you put, if you, if you have, if you take all of the Bible, you have, you have sola scriptura and total scriptura. We only believe scripture alone is the revelation of God. This Bible is the only revelation that you can count, that you can believe is true about God. And we believe all of it. And so we say, okay, it teaches over here clearly, repeatedly, only one God. It's a heresy to say there's more than one God. That's plural. That's um, polytheism. This is heresy to say that if you say, I believe that Jesus is God, Father is God, Holy Spirit is God, there's three gods, that's heresy. Because the Bible teaches monotheism, only one God. There's only one true and living God. But the Bible also teaches there's three persons that are God. And so that's where you say, all right, there's one God. 
within the one being of God, there are three divine persons. And they're all fully God. There's no, they're all co-equal. The Holy, the Father is no more, is not superior than the Son, and the Son is not superior to the Spirit, and the Spirit is not inferior to the Father. They're all three equal. They're equal with each other. And yet they take on different functional relationships, obviously, as we see, that the Son is obeying the Father. And so does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But you see here, I mean, there's very few places you see more clearly the personal distinctions between the persons right. of the Godhead within the baptism of Jesus, because they're all there, real, right in your face. And they're all Right. And if they're switching hats, they're switching pretty quick. Because yeah. one's coming down on the other, and then another one's talking from above, and so you got to be going pretty, and it's a joke. That's a joke. That's why, you, in order to be a, a modalist, you have to really manipulate this. This and that's obviously there's many other texts that talk about the personal distinction. What's the other one I have here? John fourteen twenty six. There's many others, but I, for some reason I wrote that one down. I'm not sure what's in there. And this is Jesus talking. These things I have spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples. He's about to ascend. He's about to have his passion and then ascend. So he's going to be leaving soon, relatively soon. And we know, we know from last week, how many days was it after the resurrection did he ascend? Forty. Mm-hmm. No. Try again. Wait a minute. After the after the resurrection. It's forty. Fifty. 40. What? Fifty? What? Oh no! You're right. Wait a minute. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, forty. Ding ding. I was wrong. Then there was another ten. Then there was another ten to the pen, to Pentecost. Okay, I was like, where am I getting pitched from? Okay, yeah. Sorry, you were right. So yeah. So even though after we went through all that, I still get it wrong. What a joke. Uh, to me, it's very confusing. <laughs> well, I sh- yeah. We after much we went through last week, I should get that. So yes, you're right. Resurrection, forty days. Ascension, ten more days. Pentecost. And so yes, he was. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's almost laughable. All right. John 14, 26, Jesus is speaking to them right before he's about to do all this. And he said in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, okay, so Jesus is talking about another person here, right? He's not talking about himself. He's not saying, hey, but I'm coming back. He said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There's one sentence, three distinct persons. But the Holy Spirit, whom the Father distinct between the between him and the Holy Spirit, will send in whose name? My name. So Jesus is talking. This one verse talks about all three persons of the Trinity. And, and there's many, many others. John 14 and his discourse, his upper room discourse, there's many, many. When he's talking about sending the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about sending himself back. The Spirit of... And this is where I always think it's, it's, it's important to know this. And this is where it might get a little complicated, but we want to dig in here. One God, three persons within the, in the one being, they're distinct, okay? They're distinct. Father's not the Son, Son is not the Spirit, they're distinct. Heresy to say that they're the same. But they fully share the one being, okay? So in some sense, whenever the Son operates, the Spirit operates because they, they, they're, they're sharing the same nature, Although they're distinct persons, so so whatever the Spirit operates, that's why you, this Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. He's also called the Spirit of the Father. He's also called the Helper. There's many names for the Spirit, the distinct person, yet He is the Spirit of Christ. He is the Spirit of the Father because they fully share the one being that is God. They share the nature, and so it's called the doctrine of inseparable operations. 
that whenever the Father operates, in some sense the Son operates because they're, they're, there's only one God and one God is acting. Yet, the Father is not the Son. So again, we're just kind of mind-blowing, but it's important to know that. that, that they could be doing different things. Yeah. We, well, right? what do you mean by that? Hunter, I know you don't have to go out. Get back in here. Hunter, come here. Hunter. Hunter. Can be doing one thing. Father. Get in here. I mean, Jesus can be doing one thing. The Holy Spirit can be doing one thing. But when you said it like that, it sounded like they all were going together. Yeah, I see what you mean. And again, we're, this is when we gotta. It's it gets mysterious and complicated. And so I say that's why I said in some sense. Yes, obviously the Father's in heaven speaking. Jesus is not speaking. Right. So they're doing something different. Different. The Spirit is coming down on Jesus, not the Father. So the, right. the Spirit is doing something different to the Son. And right. So they're doing, yes. Yet in some sense, one God. Right. So, there, so there's, a, there's always an inseparable operation. And so obviously they're never in disagreement. That's why I always say that they, that, um, glad I brought this note. Um, the three person, okay. The three persons have independent centers of consciousness. You see that. That's what we're talking about. Persons here. They have core personalities. Okay. They have independent wills, intellects, and emotions. Okay. And this is, but it gets. This is where we're kind of dealing with here. Yet each will, each of their minds and emotions, flow out of the fully shared divine nature. So they're always perfectly united in or in agreement. So they're not going to argue with each other. Because although they're distinct persons, they share the one nature. So it's never like Jesus going, I want to do this. Father's going, no, 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 I think we ought to do this. It's they're in agreement, yet, yet, I say this, that, that, that Jesus, the Son, does want to do something independently of the, I mean, I'm saying, okay, it's like, Harris, you know, you got to just guard against what you say because we're being very, very, we're deep here. We're in deep waters. That they operate they have it, their wills are independent of each other. That is to say, the son chooses to love the father, the father chooses to love the son, so they're, they're, those are independent, yet, again, they're, they're all fully shared in the one nature, and so they're never going to be a disagreement. But they are distinct wills in my mind. Anyway, I wrote a big, long paper about that, and that's the last thing I want to discuss right now is the three wills of God, because I've <laughs> blown my head open with that. But so what's important here and what we're dealing with here in the baptism is the personal distinction between the persons of the Godhead. And, it's, and again, it's, it's, it's vitally important to understand that there's three persons in the Godhead. It is, it is vitally important. It's, it's, it, is, uh, it is what we call a very crucial doctrine. And, and so people ask the question, can you, can you be a Christian and, and not believe the, trin the doctrine of the Trinity? And I think the answer given is mostly is correct. Yeah, you can be a Christian and not understand it, because it's a hard thing to understand. But if it's if, but if it's presented to you biblically, and that's what we've done many times, that's what right here. If it's shown biblically that there are there's one God but three persons, and they're all fully divine, and you reject that, then then it, that does come into question. Like a modalist, can a modalist be saved? Because they they would claim they believe in Jesus as God. They believe Jesus is God is what they say. But they believe that the Father is the Son, is the Spirit, and it gets a little trickier there. But ultimately, you know, why, why the Trinity is important is salvation. Only believing in the true Jesus Christ will save you. In any view, less than the Trinitarian view is a view that compromises the deity of Jesus Christ. 
That's why it's important. Because if you don't believe three persons, then you're going to subordinate Christ to the Father. And that's what they all do. Any modalist or anybody else will, will say, or you know, even Jehovah's Witnesses, they elevate Jesus Christ to a high degree, but he's not equal with the Father. And there's your there's so if you have some if you have a person that's equal with the Father, only one God though, you got more than one person, and then of course the Spirit, you have the Trinity. And if you reject the Trinity, then you in a in a sense you you have to reject the deity of Jesus Christ. Because he's clearly distinguished between the Father. He is obeying the Father. He's praying to the Father. He's doing these things in relationship with the Father. So he's not the Father. So if you don't claim the equality, if you claim the equality of Jesus Christ with the Father, then you have to have a Trinitarian view. If you don't, if you deny the Trinitarian view, then you're going to have to subordinate Jesus Christ. And if you subordinate Jesus Christ, then he's not God. Because God doesn't subordinate to anybody. And so, yeah, it's important but it's complicated. So I always say that it's complicated, but I try and teach just, I try and teach the, the things that are important. And again, with the Trinity, three things you have to understand about the Trinity is that the Bible teaches monotheism all over the place. The Bible teaches three divine persons that the Father is called God, Jesus is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God. So there you go. You have to, and then you have personal distinctions between the three persons. They're not the same. And there's where you get the Trinity. And I learned there, there's a dead end where you hit eventually with God. You want to you press in and press in, but you don't go beyond what's written, and that's all we know. That's what it said. He's, he's one God, and there's three persons, and you accept that. And you know that God the Father is a distinct person who is God. Jesus Christ is obviously the God-man now. He's, he's, unique. he's unique even amongst the Trinity because he's the only one of the three who added a human nature at the Incarnation. The Son... Is the one who added flesh and became Jesus. The Father did not die on the cross. The Father did not take on flesh. The Spirit did not take on flesh. The Spirit did not die on the cross. So when people say God died on the cross, you've got to be real careful because usually when you're talking about God, you're talking about the Father. The Father did not die on the cross. The Father is the one who killed Christ on the cross. He's the one who inflicted the wrath that killed Christ. So those are important. That's what we try and teach. But again, with, with the Baptism here, you see clearly the personal distinctions. All right, a couple more things here. You see that the Father says, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. So clearly he's talking about Jesus here. But what's interesting here is that he is, he is pleased, well pleased, before Jesus does one miracle. So Jesus didn't do any miracles until after his baptism, his ministry. And you see in the next verse, he, when he began with his ministry, Jesus himself was 30 years old. So this is when he's 30. So up until this point, he was, he is the God, he was and is the God-man, but it, it, I, I believe he didn't do one miracle up until his baptism. But he was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, perfectly holy. And the Father was already well-pleased, perfectly well-pleased with Jesus, even before he did one miracle or even began his public ministry. And obviously that 30 years of obedience is part of what was applied is applied to the believer's life. So he grew as a toddler, as a when we, we saw him when he was twelve, a couple or a month ago, whatever it was, and then we, you know all through his teenage years, up through his twenties, up until now, he lived without sin. And is critically important for us is because we are imputed his righteousness. And and if he committed one sin, then we would be would not be able to receive his righteousness. 
So you see, he's well pleased before he begins his ministry, his public ministry. And that's what this is. This is actually, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Not the beginning of his life, obviously. And we've already dealt with his birth, his, his, his circumcision. And then we saw some when he was 12. But this is when his ministry begins. And you see here where, one more important point here, and then we'll close down, is that he is anointed. This is when the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. Again, I just tend to think shaped like a dove, or not shaped like a dove. It was, it was visible. And he, and, he, and he came down on Christ and he stayed. He anointed him with the Spirit. And this is, and we've talked about this many times, that Jesus Christ, okay, one person, two natures. He's truly God, truly man. Yet when he... I'll just see if I can remember the thing. One God, one person, one God, three guys. We're talking about all these threes and ones. Jesus Christ is one person with two distinguishable but not separable natures. Nor are the natures mixture of views. He is truly God and truly human. But each nature being full and fully retaining all of its attributes. His two natures are, I'm just doing, you don't have to remember this. I'm just trying to see if I can remember it. His two natures are, Perfectly, mysteriously, but perfectly and permanently united to each other. Okay, so he's truly God. My point is here. He's truly God, truly man. He, he is divine. Yet, he voluntarily, in his kenosis, in his incarnation, he voluntarily suppressed access to his divine privileges. Unless it was according to the plan of the Father, and, by the, and this is what we're dealing with here, and by the power of the Spirit. This is when he received power to do miracles. Not that he didn't have it inherently, because he is God, he, he he didn't become God here. And there's people who teach heresy that says that he was a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's heresy. He's a God-man anointed by the Holy Spirit. And yet it's pretty clear, I think, and it was kind of shocking to me when I first learned this, that Jesus Christ didn't do his miraculous powers by his own personal power, even though he is truly God. He did them by the power of the Spirit and... And where, I, where you get one example where you get this is where they're, they're, the Pharisees are accusing him of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. And he says, if, um, if I by Beelzebel cast out, this is Jesus talking, if I by Beelzebel cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So... Another thing you see there is the kingdom of God coming upon you. They're talking about the, you see the imminency of it because there's still an offer of the kingdom to the Jews, I think, at that point. But the point there is that he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just interesting to me. Again, it doesn't deny his divinity. It doesn't say that he, he, he couldn't have, by his own personal power, done that. But it just appears biblically that... He didn't do any miracles, although truly God, truly man, even when he was in the cradle or in the manger, all the way up until the baptism, he was he had divine he was truly God also. And could have, if he wanted to, if he didn't voluntarily suppress his own rights to his his what he wanted to do and and access to his divine attributes, he, he could have done miracles, obviously, because he, he was God, never lost his divinity. And yet, it's, he didn't begin his miraculous... 
his miracles, I don't believe, until... Yes, we know that. I'm now I'm thinking about it real quick. And then we'll close. So the point I'm trying to make here, kind of getting fuddled here, but he 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 this is when he he was anointed by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person, was anointed on the second person and stayed on him, and that's how he did his powers. Again, after he was resurrected and he and he had full prerogative to his divine his own personal divine nature, I don't know how that relationship changed or if it changed. That's something I hadn't thought about. And I don't want my head to explode. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. I mean, speculation. You got. That's why I would say I'm saying this cautiously. But anyway, in John, if I remember, and then we'll be done. I know. What is up with him? No, you don't get food. You're a dog. You don't get. You don't get people food. Where's Hunter's food? Yeah, go get your special food. Where's your food? There's hundreds of food. Huh? Anyway, um, I thought it was in John. Uh, anyway, I think it says, I don't know, I would have to try to find it. I think it says that, did it say, maybe you can help me, that, that when he turned the water into wine, that was his first miracle. That's first Is that first recorded miracle, or does it say that was his first miracle? That's what I like well, to know, I know that. right offhand. I thought it was in John, but I guess it's not. Maybe it's in Mark, maybe? I don't have well, I'm just trying to make the point, I thought because I, I just kind of assumed, in a sense, that he didn't do any miracles until... Until he was baptized, but then now that I think about it, I think it says in one of the Gospels that it was his first miracle. I thought it was John for some reason, but maybe not. Maybe where we're going to be getting John four forty six, but the uh, turning water into wine. Yeah, where he made the water wine. It doesn't actually talk about it there. Um, Mary said, "Do whatever he." Has. Where what? Where is that? That that is this is not the right. But this is okay, John. Four. John two. Okay, it's in John two. two. Um, let's see here, real quick. I'm just gonna sum down. Uh, I know how, this is what I do. I chase rabbits. All right, yeah, there you go. For John 2, verse 11, this, this is after it turned water into wine. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So I think that says that that, that was his first miracle, which began after his baptism. So I, I, I don't think Jesus did any miracles. Although truly God, truly man, up until he got anointed at the, by the Holy Spirit, which is what we have been dealing with. You should ask Siri. Yeah, okay, Siri. That's usually what I do. Okay, Google. And so we will be, let's see here, now that we ended up here, because the genealogy is going to be something we just read through. So we'll, do the, we'll read the genealogy and do the temptation of Jesus either next week or we might take a couple weeks. And do some other topical stuff. Let's do a couple other topics. A couple topics, and then we'll get back to Luke in a couple weeks. 
But one thing real verse, obviously we read this earlier, but in verse 23, he began his ministry. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And then we're going to get into the, we'll read the genealogies, and then we'll deal with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness a couple of weeks from now. We'll he take a couple of breaks. Hey, he's not giving up. There's a problem you with that dog. I've never seen a dog lunge at food. First, he's so focused. Yeah, he, he knows he's, because, you know, he doesn't give, because he knows I usually go in there and give him a piece of chicken. Well, thank you for joining us, and until next time, God bless.